the presence of this command in the middle of God's top ten reminds us that there is something very important that God believes in and that He wants us as His people to protect. Have you noticed how many, if not all, of the commandments are centered around protecting something that is good? And this command is there to protect something that God believes in, God's good gift of sexual intimacy and the relational faithfulness of which that sexual intimacy is an expression. And I want to offer three challenges this morning that come out of, I believe, this word from heaven, this seventh commandment. And uh, let's get going. The first is this. Challenge number one is to reclaim, to reclaim sex. We need to reclaim sex as God's good gift to be protected, valued, and honored. Our world is saturated with sex where sex has been cheapened and degraded and stripped of almost everything that it was intended to be. So 99 times out of 100, we as God's people find ourselves opposed to sex, at least in the way it's portrayed in the media or through music or through advertising and the masses of misuse that sex is put to in our world today. But that should not be all that we have to say. Sex needs to be reclaimed. But that's not that easy for the church because through the ages, the church has had its own problems with sex, never mind the world. There have been times when Christians have been far from convinced that there's anything good about sex at all, even between a married couple. There have been times in church history when sex has not been seen as a good gift from a loving God, but as a necessary evil simply for the purpose of procreation. Even within marriage, on occasions, to abstain was best. Slightly more liberated was an expression by Pope Gregory I around the 5th century, who stated that while sexual intercourse itself was not sinful in marriage, the pleasure attached to it was. So you could have sex, but you mustn't enjoy it. What a pressure that would be. You'll have to lighten up through this morning, or it'll be a long morning, all right? We've just got to go easy with us, okay? And then in the 15th century, some theologians were tentatively suggesting that it might be okay for a man and his wife to have intercourse and to enjoy it, and for it not to be solely for the purpose of procreation. But even so, in those days they had a job finding time for it. Because at that stage, the church advocated abstinence on seasons of festivals and fasting, abstinence on Thursdays in memory of Christ's arrest, abstinence on Fridays in memory of his death, abstinence on Saturdays in memory of Our Lady, on Sundays in honour of the resurrection, and on Mondays in honour of the departed. Which, as you will have noted, only leaves Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but not during Lent. These negative attitudes that have been fostered and developed amongst godly people seeking to serve God have done us a disservice and cast a long shadow over the church and fostered a perception that God and the Bible is anti-sex. God has given something good to be protected. That's why it's there in heaven's ten. 
Something good that must be redeemed and reclaimed, both from a world that has totally debased it, and from a church that has in history so often disregarded it. You see, sex and sexuality is celebrated right from the beginning of the Bible. God created man in his own image. He created him male and female. He created them. God created us as sexual beings. Our bodily functions, our hormones, our sexual arousal was all created by God. And as Adam and Eve stood stark naked in the garden, whatever shame we might attach to nakedness, as Adam and Eve stood there before one another and before God, God said, this is very good. In fact, the way Genesis describes it in chapter 2 part of which Barbara uh, read, I think is really helpful. Uh, uh, God is looking for a helper. I want to just turn to it with me for a moment. Page 5 in the the Bibles in your pew. Genesis chapter 2, around verse 19. Uh, The situation is this, that uh, Adam's been given the task of naming all the animals. What a heck of a job. Day after day, all the animals... And all the animals are brought to uh, uh, Adam, and in verse 19, uh, uh, and then verse 20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper. Helper is a poor English translation. It's much more like a partner, someone strong and in it together. Uh, A partner was not found. This must have gone on for days. And then verse 22, God makes woman. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And then verse 23, Adam goes, wow, man, whoa, man, woman, bone of my bones, flesh of my bones, someone I'm like but different from, someone I'm attracted to, drawn by, magnetized by. As Larry Crabb puts it, after looking at animals for so long, Adam must have been ecstatic when he saw a woman, naked, beautiful, inviting. And then, so think about the context where we are, then the commentary immediately afterwards. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Right there, the beginning of the Bible, the first definition of marriage. A leaving, a cleaving, and a uniting. A uniting at all levels of which sexual intimacy was both a sign and an expression. And in fact, the next verse, verse 25, celebrates their nakedness, as I alluded to, and therefore their sexual identity. What's my point? My point is this. God created us the way he did and placed the definition of marriage right there when their naked sexuality was at the fore as a reminder that God created us distinct from all the other animals by putting relationship, not reproduction, at the heart of the sexual act. Sometimes it's said when people are having sex devoid of relationship, people say they're behaving like animals. And that's an affirmation of the belief expressed here in Genesis 2. Sex without the secure relationship of marriage is a misuse of God's good gift. It debases it, aligning us much more with the animal kingdom than with the human kingdom, people made in God's image. 
to delight in him and in one another. So our sexuality and sex itself is celebrated right at the beginning of the Bible and given its proper context. But of course, throughout the Scriptures, sex is celebrated. No more so than the Song of Songs, where the theme of the whole book is a celebration of sensual, joyful lovemaking. There are some verses in Song of Songs that I would not put on the screen for fear that I might blush. And there are verses there that I certainly would not tell my mother about. And then Proverbs celebrates the sexual union of man and wife that develops and grows through the years. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Teenage boys suddenly start reading the Bible when they find verses like that. And we could go on. The deep intimacy of man and woman celebrated in different ways. Ezekiel chapter 16, for example, parts of Isaiah, a lot of Hosea, and then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, talking about man and wife and their sexual union and the mystery that surrounds it, and saying, wow, it's an illustration, an expression of Christ and the church, the bridegroom, uh, his bridegroom, the church. The Bible talks about sex as mystery and power. Not just a physical act, something a bit deeper than a handshake, but something altogether different, out of which one flesh is formed. Something mysterious and powerful, for it said the two will become one flesh. And so to misuse it is to play with fire. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? No. No. But before we get on to that, let's affirm the little journey that we've come. The Bible celebrates sex, a good gift to be enjoyed, delighted in, but powerful and mysterious to be treated with utmost care. And this gift, as we've already said, came with a label, and that label is marriage. So if we are to reclaim sex, we need to reaffirm marriage. And that's true whether we're single at the moment or married. And I'll say more about that in a few moments. We haven't got time to develop the complexities of uh, changing social patterns, either in our current culture or in other cultures around the world. But we must maintain that marriage is not something that is cultural and therefore can be abandoned by a different culture. Sure, a different culture will express it differently, but it cannot be abandoned by another culture. Neither is marriage generational. So another generation can say, we're not going to bother with that anymore. Why can we be so confident? Because we've already seen where the definition of marriage comes from. It's in the way God designed, created the world to be and for human beings to relate together one with another. Marriage was given as part of the way God created things to be for all of his creation. An exclusive relationship. A man and his wife. A publicly acknowledged relationship that will leave the protection and the cover of his parents to step out into this new relationship. Permanent relationship because one will cling to the other consummated because they will become one flesh that's the gift of marriage to all of creation and if that be the definition of marriage then it's obvious that certain things will follow 
It will follow where sex is appropriate and where it isn't. Sex outside marriage isn't appropriate. Heterosexual sex, gay or lesbian sex, there's no difference in a sense. It's sex outside the defines that God has given for this good, powerful and mysterious gift. It's permanent. Then any breakdown must be treated seriously by those within the relationship and those surrounding them. It's exclusive, so polygamy, uh, as if you have time for more than one wife. I've got no idea, but for some people that might be on the cards. It's not on the cards, a man and his wife. Cohabitation becomes a deficient relationship because by definition it's not permanent and therefore not exclusive and it lacks the social awareness that this definition asks for. And we could go on. But my point here is this, that there in the seventh commandment, is a call for all to hold marriage to be strong and secure in the midst of the community. We need to reaffirm marriage as good and proper for the blessing not of those that are married, but of a blessing to everyone. Marriage should be honoured by all. Jesus honoured marriage by strengthening the reasons people should stay together. Uh, He he, he sided with those who were saying, you cannot just get married and, and get unmarried for each and every reason. Paul talks of it in highest honor. Husbands, love your wives as uh, their own. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Even as Christ loves the church, he goes on. Faithfulness and stability that marriage brings must be protected and guarded as a precious thing if the creation that God has made is going to flourish. For the good, not just of a man and his wife, not just for the good of children that may or may not ensue, but for the good of the whole of the community, the created order. And I think that despite the complexities of relationships that there are today, deep down, deep down, many of us, if not all of us, long for the stability and the security that long-term permanent relationships bring to our lives whether it's our own marriage or the marriage of those that are around us. And therefore, thirdly, this command is a reminder to all of us, whether we're married or single, to recommit ourselves to faithfulness in our relationships and integrity and responsibility with our sexuality. Maybe in what I've said already, or in what I'm about to say, I might hurt you, I might alienate you, I might step on something that is sensitive for you. I'm so conscious that as we come to these kind of issues, we're from all kinds of different perspectives. We may be single through choice or through circumstance. We may be glad to be single or desperate to be married. We may be single, having never been married, or married once or more, and now find ourselves single again. We may be married and desperate to be single. Married and living like we are single, married and trying to make things better. And in this next short while, I will throw out some things here and some things there, uh, uh, a bit like an automatic rifle, the scattergun approach. And I'm conscious that in doing that, there may be some areas of sensitivity that, 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 that I step on and, and I seem rude and, and difficult to you. Please don't go home and say, that Simon, he's a right so-and-so. I'm saying this now because I would love to talk to you 
about what I've said that you're finding hard. Uh, and you won't want to do that after church. You might, that's fine, but you might not want to do that after church this morning. I'm saying, find me. Come and talk to me about the things that uh, are really struggling in your heart. Uh, and I'd love to continue the conversation in the light of your particular situation and experience. So with that kind of caveat, here I go. We need to recommit ourselves to faithfulness in our relationships and integrity and responsibility with our sexuality. How on earth are we going to do that together? Number one, remember the command. The command I'm referring to is the command of Jesus. Jesus gets into a debate with some religious guys about marriage. And he says, can't you remember that God created the male and female for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and his wife, all the stuff that we've just been reading about. And then Jesus adds this bit on the end, so they are no longer two but one. And this is the bit that jumps out of the page at me every time. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I take weddings. We do all that stuff at a wedding. The busy people, usually, is the bride and the groom, and me, the rest of you, are sitting back for the ride, wondering what the food's going to be like. Some of us have work to do on wedding days. But that's nothing compared to the work that God is doing, that the wedding service, quoting this verse, reminds us of. The work that day is not the minister leading the service or the worship band or even the bride and groom making their promises not to belittle that in any way at all. But the greatest work the Bible says is that of God who mysteriously, powerfully, wonderfully is that work joining these two together around their promises. And then Jesus says in the light of that, let man not separate. Let man not separate what God has joined together. Any act that comes against a man and wife that separates them is working against what God has joined together. And often we think naturally and rightly about a third party. Encouraging a third party not to do anything that comes between man and wife. If a man is to be faithful to his wife, and if a woman is to be faithful to her husband, not just sexually, but at every level of their relationship, then we must do nothing to jeopardize it, put it under strain, put it under pressure. And in that responsibility, there is a call for all of us. But more... Maybe it's not just about a third party. Maybe the person doing the separating is one of the partners in the marriage. If that's you, you're fighting against God. And I wouldn't recommend it. Conversely, if you're trying to rebuild your marriage, the power of the universe is on your side because the God of heaven who joined you together can keep you together. I know that's cheap and trite and easy to say and belittles all the pain and the difficulty. But God can, if with both hands of both partners, trust Him with their hearts. We must remember the command. God has done the joining. Let's not find ourselves in any way, shape or form fighting against what God has joined together. Secondly, if you're married, remember to celebrate your marriage. At the heart of celebrating marriage is your intimacy, not least your sexual intimacy. 
Paul says this is really important. Because through your intimacy, you protect the exclusivity of your relationship. Read 1 Corinthians 7 and 4. And when we don't work hard at fostering our relationships, developing our intimacy, keeping romance alive and real, then we become open to pursuing intimacy and fulfillment in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. Paul is quite clear. The husband, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her, but also to her husband, in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Verse 5, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Wow. Do not deprive each other except when you both agree and then only for a time, and then only if the reason you're doing it is for prayer and fasting. Hallelujah. Having a headache is not a biblical reason. There'll be people all over Ipswich tonight going, prayer and fasting, darling, prayer and fasting. (laughs) Paul is placing a strong obligation to foster intimacy in your marriage and to celebrate that intimacy by consistently giving to each other in all kinds of ways expressed also in your sexual union. Now I've been in pastoral ministry long enough to know that these verses can place a huge layer of guilt on many couples for whom sex is a struggle for a whole variety of reasons. Please don't use these verses to manipulate each other. And I'm not in any way wanting to add pressure or guilt to what can be a very painful and difficult area. But I do want to say that it is God's purpose for you to pursue intimacy at every level with your spouse. And if for some reason that is not happening, for all manner of painful and difficult reasons, I believe the God of heaven is on your side to put it right. Do not fall for the lie that says that God is much more interested in some parts of your marriage than he is in others and act like your sexual relationship is of no consequence to him. These verses speak against that. Your sexual relationship is an essential, intrinsic part of your union and therefore of importance to God. For in the same way, everything that happens between you through the day is brought into the bedroom. Men, if you don't know what I'm on about, ask your wives. It's about the whole day in the bedroom. So what happens in the bedroom feeds what goes on into the rest of the day. And Paul says, remember to celebrate. Remember to celebrate. It's part of your godly commitment towards the seventh commandment. But you can't celebrate unless you remember your commitment. Unless you remember, if you try and celebrate without remembering your commitment, you will kill your relationship. Remember the commitment. With my body go the marriage words, I honour you. Is that still true? Five years, 15 years, 50 years? Is that still true? All that I have, I give to you. Is everything shared or some bit still is and some bit still mine? All that I am, I share with you. Are there dreams still not shared and hurts still not expressed? 
We need to remember the commitment we made to have and to hold whatever life's circumstances. If you're not putting time into your relationship, you're not being faithful. If you're not putting energy into your relationship, you're not being faithful. If you're not solidly committed to your relationship, you're not being faithful. Care for the Family says that 50% of the letters that they get is about busyness between husband and wife and the struggle that it creates. Typical letter, Rob Parsons says, uh, could be this. My husband is a faithful husband and father, but he's so busy. The kids and I don't see much of him. I'm getting bitter, but I feel I can't tell anyone else how I feel. I just don't want him to think that I don't support him. The other wives seem to cope okay. Is it me at home? He doesn't talk much. The only untruth, I think, in that statement is the idea that that kind of husband is faithful. We need to fight for our marriages. Because despite the way we sometimes behave, when we lose them, we long for them back. Again, Rob Parsons talks of a recurring theme in letters. He says, so many of them go like this. I entered an empty house and wandered around the rooms. They were gone. They'd asked me over and over and over and over to give them time. But I had such a busy job and so many commitments. Yet all I wanted as I stood in the hollow house was them back again. Remember your commitment. Foster your faithfulness. Time, energy, commitment. Be so busy looking at your wife, so busy admiring your husband, that you haven't got time to look the way Jesus says, the look that kills, the lustful look that's as good as adultery. So how do we respond? We've got to remember the command, remember to celebrate, remember the commitment, and fourthly, remember uh, the call. Remember the call. God's placed a call on each of our lives. Either to be married or to be single, and it's not as simple as that. God's calls all of us either to be married, which may or may not last for a long time in our lives. We may marry late. We may be widowed early. We may separate. Things may fall apart. God calls all of us to singleness, which may not last all our lives. It's important to guard our hearts, to understand where we are before God. You see, there are people who are married who because of a wrong choice found themselves with the wrong man and now they wish they were single. There are single people who because of a wrong choice, maybe they made inappropriate use of their sexuality, find themselves taking something wrong to the right man or right woman when he or she comes along. And that relationship struggles because of the wrong that happened before. Listen to a man just a few weeks ago. He says, I love my wife with all my heart and I just wish, I wish now more than anything I'd waited to have given myself only for her. Our culture pressurizes people into thinking that they must get married. And it's easy under such pressure to marry the wrong person. Any person becomes better than no person. I don't want to be left on the shelf. I see then with equal frequentness married people who wish they were single and single people who sometimes who, uh, wish they were married. Married people struggling with their marital status, single people struggling with their single status. The grass is not greener. We're called before God to hear his call on our lives for now. And I know that's so simplistic and so easy to say, and I'd love you to come and talk to me. 
And we must remember the call and absolutely squash the lie that you need to be in a fulfilling sexual relationship in order to be fulfilled. That's the message that we are bombarded with from everywhere, every single day. And Jesus, the most fulfilled man, the human being most fully alive, proved once and for all, forever, that you can be utterly fulfilled without a sexual relationship. In his many friendships, his love of fellowship, his daring friendliness, he cut across all the rigid contemporary barriers of gender and race and religion. He's the model of what a human life should be. And as a community, we must strive together, single and married, for a richer, better way to live. We must remember the call and be wise and prayerful about the relationships we begin can't possibly come to an end without reminding each other that we must remember the cost. When it goes wrong, the cost is huge. I sometimes hear people saying, why do the church make such a big deal about sexual sins? Aren't there other sins? Of course there are other sins. Why such a big deal? I think for two reasons. One, every other pastoral issue is sexual in some nature. That's the way it is. That's the, that's the kind of thing we struggle with. Number two, it seems reserved to sexual sin and adultery may be in particular. The ability to cause such devastating ruin in people's lives. Rob Parsons again put it like this. In our work with care for the family, we're often faced with tragedies in family life. It could be the death of a child or the sudden illness of a spouse or perhaps redundancy. These are all events that can have a devastating effect on the life of a family. And yet it seems that to the affair has been reserved the power to inflict such widespread devastation so quickly. A letter I received from a wife whose husband had left her for another woman summed that all up so powerfully. I love him and mourn the loss of my husband, my children's father, our ministry, our home, our income, and so much more. Remember the cost because we're all vulnerable. We're all susceptible. It could be you, it could be me. And as Kevin has led us in his story, remember Christ. Whatever your situation, Christ is for you. He might not be pleased with where you've ended up because it's wounded you and hurt you. But Christ is for you. The Christ who forgives and cleanses, heals and restores Christ who always offers a new beginning. You might be filled with pain because of the way one or more of these issues has hurt and wounded you. Christ came to bind up the brokenhearted. You might be consumed with guilt about a mistake, a mistake that was yesterday or a mistake that was 20, 30 years ago. Remember the Christ who came, came to cleanse and to heal and took our wrong choices, our guilt and our shame and he nailed it with himself to a cross that like him we might rise to live a new life. You might not be so condemned as convicted about an attitude, a pattern of behaviour, a relationship that isn't all that it should be. Christ is the one who comes to change, to transform. Simplicity of my words masks how big and painful and difficult some of these things are. 
You might need some human encouragement, some human help to allow God to meet you and to uh, uh, work in you and through you from where you are. Come and talk to us. Talk to Kerry, talk to me, talk to Claire, talk to Heather. Find someone else. If they don't know what to do, they'll find someone who will. Before God, who calls us on. I'm going to ask Andrew to begin to play and we're just going to spend some moments in quiet. If you're hurting, offer your hurt to Christ. If you're guilty, turn from your guilt and ask for his forgiveness. And if you're convicted in some way, invite his life-changing power to enable you to be and to do and to live as Christ has called you.